Good morning, everybody. Uh, keep your congregation in prayer. There's a bunch of people sick. Uh, Keith is sick. Gail is sick. Uh, Gail's sister, uh, Alice, had to go in the hospital with the flu, so keep her in prayer. She's had a rough go of it lately. Um, Chris and Maggie are sick. Keith is sick. Um, anyway, the whole body of Christ right. has got a cold. Jesus is not happy. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, yeah, just keep, your, keep them all in prayer. I'm sure they'll get well. But I know it's a difficult, uh, difficult to go through. I'm, I was thinking uh, this morning how now that we're over the COVID thing, like a couple of years ago, it said you heard somebody was sick. Everybody was like, oh, no, what did I have? You know, stay away from them. Quarantine them. At least now we're somewhat back to normal. So, anyway. Uh, let's open up with prayer. Let's thank God for our opportunity today to be together and to rejoice with him in his word, to have his word cleanse our hearts, which is so uh, necessary every day, uh, to have our fellowship with him strengthened and our knowledge of him deepened. And uh, so with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your continued presence. You are omnipresent. You are always around us. Even when we fail to look to you, look at you, and we get absorbed in ourselves, you are still there. You are faithful, being on us, in us, with us, around us. We thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who has finished the work, has made everything Uh, for us available, a life with you, eternal life with you that we can grab hold of now. We thank you that your grace is patient. And though we struggle to see and to do that which is life indeed, that you continue to love us, forgive us, and provide for us. Thank you, Father, for your word, for the Holy Spirit within us that makes your word alive and for all that you are and all that you do. We lift up those in our royal family who are ailing. We ask, Father, for healing. We also ask for their comfort and that they would know that we are all together uh, as one body, no matter where they are. We thank you for those who are on the Internet who are a part of us, who are always with us as well. We thank you for their, their love and their gifts and all that they do. And Father, we ask that through your word, each of us would be enlightened in the way that you would have it. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. All rise, please.
At least the Bible is not connected to media, so that we basically just have to read. Anyway, yeah, that will not be interrupted. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, we continue this morning. We did a, a little bit on, on thankfulness on, on, uh, on Wednesday. Uh, so we, we kind of paused on that class f- away from this. What we've started is the Lord's Prayer. And uh, the, the class on Wednesday was about uh, how the, the yoke of the Lord is easy and light and that we should be grateful for the life that he's given to us. And that, of course, is connected here. Uh, the, the place to express your gratitude is in prayer. Not the only place, but I would say any time that in your heart, which is where you're grateful from. Uh, <clears throat> and it turns out that everything important in the spiritual life comes from the heart, comes from within the inner inner man, inner person. And uh, Christ is going to make an issue out of that in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, <clears throat> And so where we take hold of things, like the context of the Lord's Prayer is the Sermon on the Mount. That's where it is. It's, it's like smack dab in the middle of it. 
And prayer is given to us so that we can stay in constant communication with our Lord because this, with our Father, this uh, life that has been given to us, eternal life, is going to be a source of worry and stress. Now, uh, you say, well, wait a minute. How could that be? It's because of the the, uh, evil that lurks within you, in, in your flesh. There's a part of you that doesn't want to live it. And so this causes you a war that, that rages within. In Galatians 5, the flesh wars against the spirit, the spirit wars against the flesh. Uh, once, therefore, one of the um, aspects of prayer is to, to know that you're not in this alone. You're not, you're not, we, we have a fight to fight, and it's the most important fight of our lives. Uh, and nothing on this earth the fight that you could fight with another person, a nation against nation, um, whatever, ideology against ideology, Republican against Democrat, ducks versus beavers. Congratulations, beavers, for a win yesterday. Uh, <clears throat> none of that is even remotely as important as the fight that rages within you and within me, and it has to be won. Uh, and so prayer is, we have prayer, it's one of, one of the aspects of prayer, is to go through this with the Lord presently, every day. And, uh, if, you know, if, if I, the, the problems that happen in my soul is where I get my eyes off them and my eyes are on myself, and it really doesn't even start off with me wanting to sin in any way, it's just that I get occupied with other things. And then sin's around the corner because my eyes are off of him. And then they get occupied with the things that are of me or of this world or of my pleasure or of what I want. And I forget. And then sin soon comes. Uh, so the context, what we, we're going to look at continuing the context of the Lord's Prayer, which is the life of the disciple that is as high as heaven itself. It is, as Jesus said, I came to give them life abundantly. And that's what this life is. The life of eternal life is an abundant life. A life abundant spiritually. However, the flesh is always with you. You may wonder why you're regularly tempted to do and think that which is contrary to righteousness. There's nothing wrong with you. Or should we say, there's something very gravely wrong with you. But it's the same wrong that's wrong with everybody else. You're in good company. We all have this wrong. We are all wretched men and women. Romans 7, 25. But, he, but we are the wretched who have been cleansed and saved and made righteous. Hence, conflict is in us. So we must learn that life, for us, does not consist in uh, looking with disgust and depression upon what's wrong with us. We can do that all day. And sometimes we have to. We have to self-evaluate. But when the Scripture tells us to not be of a certain type, to not be, you know, lay aside the old man... In, uh, in the old man and the old woman, lay aside the old self, 
no longer live as the unbeliever, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, that we have to, at times we have to evaluate and see ourselves as what we are, but not meaning as what is wrong with us. There's a sin nature in each of us, and each of us have our weaknesses, and each of us have our trends towards sin. But if we just spend our time looking with disgust upon what's wrong with us, then we'll get nowhere. The Scripture far more abounds with reaching ahead to that which lies ahead, aggressively pursuing, not just when we feel like it, If we wait until we feel like it, we're never going to do it. But to grab hold purposely of the righteousness that God has given us. We can aggressively live the life that has been gifted to us. We read of it. We see what that life is. And then we become active heroes in our own story. Rather than waiting until I feel like being a hero. When I mean hero, I mean spiritually. But within us, within the righteous, lurks terrible evil. It's right under the surface. Isn't it? No matter, I would say no matter how much power you get or, or, or you overcome the, the flesh, the flesh is under an inch of topsoil and under, under an inch of loose topsoil within your soul. It's ready to come out, ready to rule. And so we must actively seek the righteous life with joy. Actively. So look at Philippians 3.17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you, with, tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. So you see where, where Paul here is. And these could be believers. I mean, definitely this is a, a, um, a description of an unbeliever. But can a believer be in this state? And I would say, yeah. Uh, but you know, regardless, whether they're believers or unbelievers is not really the issue here. It, what the issue is, is what we can be pursuing and what we should be pursuing. And pursuing here in this context, is one that is quite aggressive. It's in this chapter that Paul says, one thing I do, I reach ahead to the upward call. Forgetting what lies behind, I reach ahead. The Greek word is dioko. Dioko means to lust for something. And in this case, for something good. Notice, though, the description of those who walk in a pattern that is not of Paul. He says to brethren, follow my example. Does he say, wait till you feel like it? Wait till it feels right? No. Follow it now, today. Follow my example and be sure to do it day in and day out. Who is their God? Their appetite. What does that mean? My God is what I want when I want it. And I feed it. Right? And that's the sin nature. The sin nature is voraciously hungry. Is it ever enough? I've always, I, you know, I play games with the sin nature and say, look, if I give you just this much, you'll be satisfied, right? And you'll leave me alone. And sin nature says, oh yeah, Joe, that's, that's right. 
And I'm, if the sin nature had a friend inside of me, which I think he does, would say, I can't believe Joe's going to fall for this again. And we do. I do. Whose God is their appetite. Whose glory is their what? Their shame. What do I glory in? My shame. You know what shame is? And shame is I had not done what I ought to have done. And, you know, therein lies the result and who set their minds on earthly things. So then Paul encourages us, look at verse 20, but our citizenship, for our citizenship is not here on earth, is it? Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. And see that? Paul says, look, no matter how hard things get, no matter how much life beats on you, you have a destiny in heaven, which is your position now. Your citizenship is in heaven. I go to prepare a place for you, Christ said, a dwelling. And so our citizenship citizenship is there. We eagerly wait for a Savior who will do what? Transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And that speaks of the kingdom. Subject to the king. And our bodies are going to be subject to his will. So, uh, skip ahead to Colossians 3. So, keep in mind, right, their God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Colossians 3.1 Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So Paul says here much of the same thing that we just read in Philippians. That when he appears, we will be revealed with him in glory. In Philippians, it was that he is going to transform or uh, transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. He's going to make us like him. That is our certain destiny. Our life is Christ, he says. Not like Christ, not about Christ, but is Christ. And so his life is our life. So we can see why in the Sermon on the Mount, where the Lord's Prayer is given to us, that we are given or told of a life that is lived in the heights of heaven, though we dwell here on earth. The, the commandments, the, the things that we are to do and be to one another and to even our enemies is of divine love. It is what God would do if he were here as a man. And he was. Hence, it is his life. And that's what we're called to do. And if we don't grab it, grab hold of it, and we have to use prayer, we use prayer in this to praise God, to be thankful, to pursue, constantly staying in contact with Him, 
because we're so easily distracted by earthly things. We've just seen in two epistles where he says, look, don't look at the earthly things. And therefore, it means that we are easily diverted to the earthly things. Things of the flesh, things of the earth, material things. So when Jesus gives his famous sermon, this is precisely what he is revealing. The new life given to mankind through his cross. Heavenly to the standards of heaven. The ethical commandments of even the Mosaic law, would no longer be bound and tethered by the flesh. They were told in the Old Testament to love God and to love their neighbor, but they couldn't do it like we do, or like we can. And the reason being is because, well, they weren't in Christ. They didn't have this position. They weren't the temple of God. They weren't indwelt by God. They, weren't, they didn't possess the very righteousness of God. Not yet. They were claimed to be righteous by a future work of Christ. So there's, as Paul writes in Romans 3, their sins were covered, but not yet forgiven fully because the cross hadn't happened yet. But now that it has happened, and we are what? New creatures in Christ. That's not said of anybody in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit indwells every one of us. And so now these commands, love the Lord, love your neighbor, do good to others, give, be gracious, it's all there in the Old Testament. It hasn't changed. Faithfulness, uh, faithfulness to your, your spouse, to your family, absolute loyalty, you know, love. Don't be arrogant. You, know, that, that's, you still can't be arrogant in the church age just like you couldn't be in the Old Testament. But what has changed now? It's not that they're new commands. But now the depth of them, what they were always meant to be for man, is given to us. And, that, and we would be like, that's great. And then do nothing about it. What great news. And then do nothing about it. Because it takes a day-by-day pursuit Right? God calls us sheep for a reason. We're dumb, easily distracted, easily led astray. Galatians 5. Look at Galatians 5. <clears throat> I was an, and I, I'm, I'm emphasize in the, in the commands of the law, the Mosaic law. They were no longer under the ceremonial commands, like the washings, the sacrifices, the offerings, even the festivals and feasts. They are not required. But the ethical commandments are no longer bound and tethered by the flesh, but men would be set free. So notice Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. I say free, awesome. What does freedom mean? It's the freedom to do that what we were always designed to do. Mankind, there's a purpose for us made in God's image. We're we're looking at a world that's fallen some thousands, many thousands of years ago. However many thousands, no one really knows for sure. But, you know, look at the result of this world under the control of fallen man. It's a mess. Absolute mess. And yet, somehow, we haven't destroyed ourselves. 
And that is God who will not allow us to. Not yet. When the tribulation comes, he will allow us to do that. And as, as uh, I think it's the Lord who said that if those days weren't shortened, not one man would live in the tribulation. It takes seven years in the tribulation for us to bring planet Earth to the brink of complete annihilation. <laughs> seven years. That's all it takes for us to do it. So what are we free for? To live as we want? No. So he says, therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Slavery to what? The flesh. In Galatians, it's a different different aspect of the flesh, which was a salvation by works program. So we must be active in our roles. We are free to do. We are free to act. We must be active in our roles as spiritual heroes. We must not live spiritually passive, waiting for when we feel like it. As if the life that has been given to us is only true when we feel like it's true. I mean, I'm sure that sometimes we feel that way. That if, if you're you know, like me, there's times when I'm excessively happy because of the life I have in Christ. I'm bubbling over with joy. Just because of the fact that it exists and I have it. And then at other times, I'm not. In fact, quite the opposite. And I think to myself, well, what was the difference? Not that it's our job to keep ourselves bubbly, happily, happy. But let's take out the bubbly part, you know. And just the happiness that we're all to have and the contentment we're all to have is all a function of the, the perspective we have. And in a lot of cases, you know, people are selling, uh, trying to sell to other people a positive faith, a positive thinking kind of thing. If you just think happy, you'll be happy. You think happy, you'll be happy. And that is a lie. But when you think of what you are in Christ, because it, this is not made up. Christ is at the right hand of God above all rule and authority. Christ is in me. I am a new creature in Christ for all of eternity. I am a citizen of heaven. I am going to be resurrected with him. These things are all true. So we must not live spiritually passive. In the great epistles of our New Testament, they describe our life in Christ and we are constantly exhorted and commanded to go forward, to grab hold of, to persist, to be diligent, to per, uh, 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 pursue, and to do constantly. Remember, our study in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 was all about doing, doing, doing. And so we have to fight the good fight of faith. As Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. <clears throat> So, however, though, with the continued existence of the flesh in us, which is why the fight is there. All right? there's, no, there's no fight, the good fight in heaven. This is an earthly function. Uh, so, but with the consistent, continued existence of the flesh in us, though it is crucified, it would tempt us in many ways. The flesh tries to make this spiritual life as hard as possible. <clears throat> so the struggle then between the old and the new 
between the old self and the new self may create anxiety. Uh, um, you, you may be uh, tempted to say, you'll, you'll never be able to do this. Just throw your hands up in the air. You'll never be able to do this. And in actuality, in, some, in, in, in the right perspective, that's a good place to be. Uh, it, it can be a dangerous place to be, I understand. But none of us can do this on our own. And it's, it's all of us have to come to the end of ourselves and, and really throw in the towel and say, Lord, I, I can't do this. And, and that's, more, that's more of a realization. And the, and the fact that when that realization happens, something changes within you. I think it, within yourself, if you're still holding on to the possibility that you can do this, then uh, the change that is needed hasn't yet been made. But take heart, it'll happen. If you keep pursuing God, that is. You see, therein lies the key. You've got to keep pursuing. And when you fail and you fall and you will, you've got to pick yourself back up and you've got to keep at it. And you've got to keep at it. And eventually, you have to throw your hands up in the air and say this, I have tried and tried and I can't, I can't do this. And um, then that is hopefully the time where you really hand all the controls over to God. Not that you don't make decisions anymore, but everything you do is relying upon him. Now, I, I have to do it his way. Somebody say, why do you follow the command so strictly? Uh, if I don't, I will mess this up badly. I will cause hurt to myself and to others. I have to do it his way. There's no other way to do it for me. And all of us have to come to that. So, <clears throat> God gives us prayer. This can be a stressful thing at times. At other times, there's no stress in it at all. But at other times, when you're fighting a good fight, it, it can be daunting. And no one wants to be fighting. But look at Philippians 4.4. 4. God actually admits to us that this fight might make us anxious and worried. In response, our Father, who would never leave us to fight the good fight on our own, gives us prayer. Stay in contact with me. Because in the name of Christ and what we are in him, the access to prayer is any place, anywhere. Any place, anywhere. We don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to go to a church. We don't have to go to a priest. We, you are a priest. You can pray to God any place, anywhere, anytime. So look at Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, the Lord is near came very soon after he just wrote that we're citizens of heaven in Philippians 3. All right, we're citizens of heaven. We eagerly await our Lord, our Savior. And he says the Lord is near. So, again, taking our eyes towards more heaven and the Lord in our future and not particularly focusing on what's going on right now in life. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And guard means to protect. The peace of God will protect you if you're not anxious, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, prayer and asking, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So in verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, Dwell on these things. See, that's active. I can dwell on them when I feel like it, but I'm going to be waiting a long time. Plus, you know, when do you feel like it? It, That depends on circumstances that are out of your control. When do I feel like praising God? When do I feel like looking at that which is excellent? If I'm waiting and waiting for that, I'm not going to do it near enough. See, because over time, looking at these things and praying and looking at these things and praying, and when you look at them, it's when you're studying the Word of God, when you're contemplating, meditating on the Word of God, when you're Salah, remember in the Psalms, it means to meditate. Over time, these truths change your perspective. They change your heart. Your heart's transformed. If I just do it when I feel like it, you know, it's like... Studying the Bible when you feel like it. Like we don't do that here. We're, we we make you we don't make you come, but we <laughs> we offer you four times a week. There's no churches who do that. Not that it, that matters. But you know we offer a lot of word because it's so important. But what if you just you know you studied the, or heard the word of God maybe once a week or once a month? What's your perspective going to be? What are your eyes focusing on? What do you want to fill your heart with? And these things, these things are under your control. If there is anything under your control, it's definitely this, is what you look at. Actively. And there's so much in our world that is designed to get us not to look at this. And they are things, you know, as uh, Satan has an agent within you, a friend. Satan and the kingdom of darkness have a friend that is within you. It's your sin nature, your old self, who loves those things. So dwell on these things. And in verse 9, he says, the things you have learned and perceived and received, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In verse 7, the peace of God will guard your heart. In verse 9, the peace of God will be with you, or the God of peace will be with you. Now, in this, getting back to verse 6, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Ah, this, see, I'm loving This is the part that I love recently. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Paul is sure to include thanksgiving in the process of laying our burdens at the altar of grace. God, this is making me anxious or it's potentially making me anxious. I come to you to lay this upon your shoulders. Take it from me. And Paul says, "Eh, eh, make sure you thank him. 
And what is this? We've talked a lot about this. Praising God at the front of your prayer. And I take this from the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. That's praising Him. That's a doxology. Doxology means you're glorifying Him. It only takes a minute. I imagine that some of us are still feeling that we must rush right to our needs. And that a minute of two, minute or two, that two would be a long time, wouldn't it? A minute or two of praising God and thanking Him for who He is and what He's done takes too long. Look, and perhaps it's uncomfortable for us to do so. Right? We've all had, a, we've, for many of us, we've been taught a systematic approach to prayer that you confess your sins, you give thanks, you pray for others, then you pray for yourself. And I see nothing wrong with that. All of that is right. But if it becomes a mechanical process in which prayer is not a relationship between a father and a child, a father and son or father and daughter, and it's just mechanics, well, then it's not really communication. Communication is uh, something that is personal and in real time dynamic, and it's not always exactly the same. However, if, if we wait at praising God, maybe we never get to it. Or maybe we don't get to it enough. And, and perhaps, I can't say for sure why the Lord put the petitions that he did in the order that he did. But he includes confession of prayer, but that's not until the fifth p- petition. You know, and I, and I, I have students who are like, I have to confess first. That's what I've always done. And I'm like, well, if you need, you feel the need to do that, do that. Right? There's nothing saying don't. But I don't do that anymore. I know blasphemy. I make sure even before I say any sins, or I, and I have sins daily, some of the ones I, when I don't even know what I've done, I confess that, Lord, I know I've sinned against you. I'm a sinner, and my weaknesses are always there and waiting, and I thank you for your forgiveness, and let me forgive all others as you have forgiven me. And it keeps my mind on that, that every day I need forgiveness. But I don't ever start that way. I say, Father, you are my holy Righteous Father in heaven. Do I not get to say that to him? Yeah, there might be other. I'm sure there's Christians out there who say, well, God doesn't hear that because you didn't confess your sins first. I'm like, all right, show me chapter and verse, and if you don't have that, that's your opinion. And you may have your opinion. I'm not going to fight with you about your opinion. If that's what you want to do, do it. But I think the Lord gave us the order on purpose. Because you see, when, I, when we do that, if we do that, you every time you pray, you have thanked and praised God in that prayer. You haven't waited. And how many times is it going to be where you rush right to your problem and here's my problem, please take care of it. In Jesus' name, amen, and I'm on, on with life. Did you pause for a second and thank the Lord your God for His grace and forgiveness and gifts and that He's your Father and that He gave you His Son? Maybe, maybe not. But if you, if you don't want to follow an order like that, then be sure, remind yourself, thank Him. See, Paul puts it right here. With your prayers and petitions, with thankfulness.
So, with the Lord's instructions on prayer, He gives it to us right in the midst of His teaching on our extraordinary life uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Go to Matthew 6. And it is right after that He teaches us on prayer that He teaches us not to worry. So, Paul said to us, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing. Look at Matthew 6.25. So, the teaching of the Lord's Prayer ends in verse uh, 13. And then he teaches on fasting. And then in relation to money. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy in verse 19. And again, that gets back, that gets right back to uh, our reading just now on seek the things above, not the things in the earth, right? In the epistles. Do not, verse 19, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thieves and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And, and so, right? The things above, not the things in the earth. And then, and so we have this conflict. But we like the things of the earth. God says that's fine, you know, uh, as long as they're in their right place and you worship me above all other things. The things that I bless you with, you may enjoy. But yet, there's a very great danger in us for stressing out about this. To seek the things above, to pursue our relationship with God in the midst of a very tangible, real, material world which puts upon us and tempts us with things that go against that what we're supposed to focus on. And so, he says in verse 25, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Your Father knows what you need. He will provide it. Well, what should I seek? Right? And then same thing. Uh, was it verse 33? Seek first His kingdom. In his, uh, Matthew 6.33 but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, there is a seeking, just like in Colossians 3, just like in Philippians. Seek Him. Yeah, and, and in this seeking, you're going to need prayer. Because God will, to us, feel very far away at times. Too far. You know, so you're seeking Him that you do not see while you're tempted all around you with the things that you can see. And so Jesus is going to tell us, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. And we're like, good Lord, what in the world does that mean? But the context of it, it's, an, it's amazing. You know, and I've, the little bit of Greek that I've learned has actually clarified something here for me. My textbook deals with this passage because it's an if clause. It's a conditional clause. If your eye causes you to stumble. 
Uh, and and it, the if clause is more like this. If and let's consider for a second that it's true. Right? It's an evidence inference thing. Because Some people say, well, that's a first class condition, so you have to pluck your eye out. All right, go ahead, you first. If your eye causes you to stumble. But does your eye cause you to stumble? Let's think about it. He's talking about your physical eye. So is that when I in the context he's talking about lusting after another person lusting after it's and it's fine he he uh, puts it to men which Jesus is sharp enough to know that men have more of an issue with lusting after the opposite sex than women do probably um, I'll go out on a limb there <laughs> is it your eye that causes you to lust for that woman do you say like you know stupid eye no it's not is it. What causes you to lust? It's not your eye at all. It's your heart. If you were blind, you could lust. And I was very dear friends with a blind man. And he could lust. I can talk about him now because he's at home with the Lord. Phil Couturier. He's one of my best friends in the world. Diabetes caused him to lose his eyesight. But, uh, yeah, he, he liked pretty girls. <laughs> I can't, that, not in that way. Don't, don't take that wrong. He, he was an appreciator of beauty in women. And just like any, any man is, really. But, all right, I have to stop now. I'm getting, <laughs> digging a hole. As my wife is listening, I'm sure. Who's the prettiest, I, should, I would say, to me. But, um, yeah, you know, point being, you don't have to have working eyes to lust. So that's what, when Jesus said, look, if your eye causes you to stumble, get rid of it. In actuality, and then he says, if your hand causes you to steal, lop it off. So we should be cutting off all our body parts. <laughs> we should be. Because it's better to go to hell with, you know, it's better to go to heaven without the body parts than to go to hell with them all. And we scratch our heads at this. And Jesus is making an incredible point. That it's not your hand that causes you to steal. It's not your eye that causes you to lust. It's your heart that does. But the religious Pharisees were all about what? Washing hands, wearing the right robes. They were all about what man does. Uh, eating particular foods and, and uh, tithing certain amounts. And it was all material. And I say, well, if this is unclean materially, then it's unclean. And Jesus says, no. It's not what goes into the body that makes a man unclean. It's what comes out from the heart. That is unclean. And see, what Jesus does for us in this sermon is to open our horizons to the fact that we have a spiritual life that is lived within. And therein lies the fight. What we look like overtly to others you know, nobody knows what you're thinking or what you did last night. Well, maybe nobody. You would say nobody knows. In the deep recesses of your thinking, you have been thinking terrible, evil, awful thoughts. But everybody, nobody knows because outwardly you're like a Pharisee. Jesus is setting us free from this. And since it so depends on who we are within, that he's given us prayer to keep in constant communication. <clears throat> so 
So, our Lord, if you go back to Matthew 4, Uh, 17, this is the beginning. In Matthew's Gospel, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's not the first very beginning. It's just how Matthew presents it because the Gospels are works of literature. And Matthew is doing this on purpose. Matthew is conveying a message right at the front. The first message is this. In verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, stop following the wrong kingdom, which is earthly and material, and follow the only kingdom, which is him and spiritual. Secondly, he calls his disciples to follow him. Verse 19, he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And the first, so <clears throat> the first thing, follow the right kingdom. Secondly, follow me. And then thirdly is the response. And the response is, immediately they left and followed him. So what do we have here right at the start of Jesus' ministry in this gospel? Follow the right kingdom. Follow me with complete obedience, leaving everything else behind. That is the only proper response to our election. I said response now. There's others out there who say, if you don't have that response, you're not saved. That's lordship salvation. I, do, I reject that completely. <clears throat> As a born-again believer through faith in Christ, the only proper response to your elective call is to follow him completely. Now, do we all have that response? Not a one of us. But it's the only proper one. And we have to know that because we're in the pursuit of that. As, as we're going along, year in and year out, we're letting go, letting go of the things that, that are encumbersome. And Hebrews 2, uh, 12, Hebrews 12, running the race that is set before us, leaving aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and running that race to win. And so we have to grab hold of it, right? It's active. See, Jesus said, follow me. He didn't, he didn't grab them by the ear and make them. They had to choose this. Now, they're apostles. If they don't choose this, Jesus made a bad choice, right? I mean, technically, it would be odd for someone to be called an apostle and not follow, although actually we do have Judas. But, you know, for us, this is not just for apostles. We just read how Paul said, everything you see in me, imitate these things. We're all called to do this. And then near the start of the ministry, of this sermon, Jesus is sure to clear up the fact that he did not come to abolish the law. And we've talked about that, and I think for the sake of time here, we'll skip that a bit. And I talked about that. All right. So um, let me see. What do I want to do? Yeah, let's let's do that. We'll close it with that. We've already talked about this. This bears a lot of repetition, though, because this, I'm not under the law, but I am under the law, is confusing. Um, Let's see, where is that? Did I keep it in here? I did not. 
There it is. So as Paul says in Galatians 3.10, for as many are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curses everyone who does not abide by all the things in the book of the law to perform them. Uh, so as he makes the case to the Galatians who had tried to put themselves under the law by uh, lies and deception and false doctrine, that they had become this works-oriented, uh, you're saved because you got circumcised. And oh, again, back to what we just read about, this material cleansing, material circumcision is obviously material, uh, the festivals, the, the uh, feasts that they kept. And they were, the Galatians were told that, look, you have to keep these things. And they accepted that. And Paul said to them, look, you've started out by grace. Are you now being perfected by the works of the flesh? In other words, doing festivals, circumcising, washing hands, eating particular foods, uh, these are all material things. They have nothing to do with the heart. But Jesus says this, look at Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now for some that would mean that this is accomplished when Christ finishes the cross. And you know, I, sure, I'll entertain that thought. However, my point is, uh, is that the commands of the Old Testament don't go away. You're still to love the Lord your God with all your heart. You're still to love your neighbor as yourself. You're still not to commit adultery or lie or steal or murder. You're to have no other gods before you. You're to be holy as he is holy, Deuteronomy. But what we don't have are the cleansing, the ritual things. All those ritual things pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ and those he fulfilled. And so we don't sacrifice animals anymore. That's actually blasphemy because the one sacrifice has come. We don't have to wash our hands in a certain way or eat certain foods because all of that is fulfilled in him. But the ethics and morals of the Mosaic Law, you know, these, these are, they come from God. They're not from men. It wasn't Moses who thought up a good way to live. It was God. And it came from God. You know, the, the, how you treat your neighbor, it comes from the love of God. It's not man-made. How you, you know, what are the laws of marriage? That comes from God. God made marriage, not us. Those laws are from God. And so as Jesus says here, none of this is going away until all is accomplished. And then he says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called last in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Nowhere in this sermon do we read about washings or sacrifices or offerings. None of it. What we do read of is ethics. Pure and simple heavenly ethics. Everything that is holy. The ethics of the law are timeless. They're timeless truths. Be gracious to your neighbor is a timeless truth. Do not be arrogant is a timeless truth. 
don't forget who gave you all this good stuff, God said to them before they went into the promised land. Do not forget me, God said, and be thankful. Timeless truth. We're to always be thankful. We read David's Psalms. Do we see anything different in them from us? Do we like have no identification with them? We love them because what David is writing about is the same thing that we're to love and be passionate about. The Lord is my shepherd. That hasn't changed. In fact, Jesus said, I am the great shepherd. I call my sheep by name and they follow me. How about following God? Is that an Old Testament truth? Of course it is. It's a New Testament truth as well. Here's the great part though. The laws themselves are not exactly what we're under. And this is why we can say we're not under the law. The commandments themselves are not our master. In Christ, the commandments are not our master any more than doing good and providing service for someone you love is your master. In other words, say, I love my wife, so I'm going to do good things for her. Now, if I had just a list of things to do, I'd say, all right, on this day I'm going to do this. Say I just made a list for all year, all the good things we're going to do, keeping anniversary and birthday in there, of course, and Christmas, and I wrote them all out. And I was like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this on this day and this on this day and this on this day. And I followed that list. Who is my Lord? Is the list. What's my master? Is the list. Not the love for her, but the list. If I'm keeping the list, and that's all I care about is the list, then my love for the other person that I'm doing the good things for, that doesn't matter. I'm following the list. If I'm going to serve the church and I say, well, you know, uh, I'm going to do this. When I walk in, I'm going to go up to so-and-so and say this. And then I'm going to, you know, do this task and I'm going to do this and that. And it was all mapped out. And I followed it like a script, like I was in a movie. And what it, so what's my law? What's my God is the list. And we're no longer under the list. But we have to keep the things in the list. Oh, you bet we do. It's not, I have to find my slide here. Uh Oh, what did I do? There it is. It's not the doing that we're under, but the love for whom we do these things that rules us. It's not the, the doing that we're under. See, we could just do for the sake of doing, couldn't we? And it would mean nothing, really. We are married to the one who removed the penalty of sin. We do because we love Him. And therefore, we can spontaneously do. See, if I'm under a list of rules, I can only do the thing that is called for right now. If something interrupts my list, I'm sorry, I can't do that. If someone comes along and interrupts and, and it's, a, it's an opportunity for me to either share the gospel or share encouragement or share truth, say, sorry, you're not on the list. I can't, I can't serve you now. You have to wait. You'll have to take, make an appointment on the list. 
And so I'm under a list. And we're no longer under a list. In the Old Testament, that's what you had, is you had the list. You had to follow the laws. But then there were others in Israel who saw through that. And I think guys like David saw through that. That, yeah, I've got to keep the law. But isn't it David who writes in Psalm 51 that burnt offerings, you don't even want them, Lord. What you want is a broken and contrite heart. See, David saw through it because he loved God. Right? What was David's key? He fell in love with the one who gave the law. But what if I'm just under law? Then I'm just doing things for the sake of doing. And I, I guarantee there's a lot of Christians who are doing that. And, and you know, they might be doing better than me because they're really strictly putting themselves under it. And, and hats off to them, man. You know, I, I'm not going to judge any for that. But it's, we're married to the one who fulfilled the law we are in union with the one who removed the penalty of sin and released us from death. One of the names for the law, for the Mosaic law, is the law of sin and death. In Romans 8, 2. The law of sin and death. And Jesus has removed our sin and canceled the penalty of death. And all of us are no longer under that penalty. So we're, and this is where the other crowd, the pendulum swings and the other crowd says, so we're lawless. We can do whatever we want. Go Corinthians. We can do whatever the heck we want. Right? We're not under the law anymore. You're sleeping with your mother-in-law. That's great. Gross, but great. (laughs) You go into the temple of Aphrodite and tying one on and sleeping with prostitutes. Awesome. Isn't grace wonderful? Go Corinthians. And, uh, you know, is that, so you're a lover of Christ? And this is a point that Paul brings out. Why would the temple of God unite itself with a prostitute? You are the temple of God. It, it is. Your love of Christ should propel you to do the things that Christ loves. So, the ethics of the law remain. But now we do them from a position that no ultimate Old Testament saint could have dreamed of. For example, in the ancient East, if you had a guest of honor, when they came to your door, say for dinner, you would wash their feet. You'd have a servant wash their feet. You remember this was an issue with the disciples in the upper room where all of them had dirty feet and nobody, it would seem nobody took the initiative to either wash their own feet or to wash the feet of others. I wonder if one of them started to wash his own feet before he came into that room. The others would have come over with their feet and shoved them in the bowl and be like, come on, come on, Peter, wash them. I don't know. But none of them washed their feet. So Jesus had to get up and put a servant's apron on and wash their feet. When Jesus went into the house of a Pharisee, he was invited there for dinner probably a Sabbath dinner, by a Pharisee named Simon. This is in Luke 7, where the, the woman, we assume to be a prostitute, uh, snuck in there and found Jesus and fell at his feet and started weeping uncontrollably on his feet. 
it, in that day, if you, gre- you greeted a guest of honor by washing their feet, did that mean anything, though, about how you felt about them? If you go, even if you went over someone's house in our day and age and that person hated you, right? They, they wouldn't say, oh, it's you again, you jerk. They'd say, oh, hello, welcome. You know, it's cordial. In other words, they're just being nice. That's what it is to be under the law and not to love. If you did love, you would treat that, even if that person was your enemy, you would treat them a certain way. You wouldn't be beholden to a script. You would treat them in a certain way that divine love demanded, of which you would love to do. Or, you could in your heart want to choke them and then be nice to them. If the work is your master, then the love is not. If you serve God and man because you love them, you do the things in the law instinctively because you want to. And as Paul wrote for us in Philippians 4, you rejoice. And when you start to get anxious about things, what do you do? Pray. Uh, Let your prayers and your petitions be made known with thanksgiving. And see, now... In Christ, these laws become our very life because it is what life is. And we understand that. We love our master. We love our lawgiver. You can't say you love the lawgiver and not really particularly like his laws. You love the lawgiver. You love the laws. And so for that reason, we joyfully pray So as we, in looking in the context of the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew, Jesus then teaches us how to pray in the midst of a new and living way of a disciple of Christ. Not in the way of Israel of the past, but new, actually brand new. He tells us to address Yavah Elohim as Father, our Father who is in heaven. He was the only Jew to ever do that. There's, there's one, there's, I think, two passages in the Old Testament where Israel, where God says, I am your father to Israel. There might be more. There's, there's not more than five. I know that. There's very few passages in the Old Testament where God, but God does say it, that he is a father to Israel and Israel is his son. But for a Jew, a, a man, to be constantly speaking to Jehovah Elohim as father was really brand new. No one had ever done that before. And Jesus did it all the time. And then he told us to do it. We speak to him as father. And this right from the start should tip us off. That our prayers even are not a prayer list. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a prayer list. It's very helpful. You don't want to forget about people. But if your prayer is just the list, and I say, well, I have this very long list, and I made it through the list, I have prayed very well. Have you? Or is our prayers uh, mastered by some form? 
In other words, I've got to do this first and that first, then the other. And I could say, well, I followed the procedure, so I prayed very well. And your master is the list and the procedure, but not the father. The father is your master. Pray to him. Pray to him in love as a son and a daughter who has been freed by him, saved by him, delivered by him, loved by him eternally. A father who is patient and forgiving and kind and deals out discipline when we need it, but never too much more than we can handle. A father who continues and never tires to teach us. Never tires of correcting us. And always loves us. A father who will always do good to us. Who is absolutely perfect. A father who has given us his word and his spirit and eternal life. Has not been shy with his promises at all. And has just revealed to us promise after promise of the future and what we are in him. And everything that we are and been blessed with. That is our father. We praise our Father from our real desire to praise Him and not from just parroting words. Right? We can memorize a great praise psalm and just say it, which I, I would not be against that, by the way. It's a wonderful thing to do. But as long as you know what the words mean and that that meaning comes from your heart. And so this and everything else in this wonderful sermon that Christ gives on this day It's a spring day, actually, a spring morning in Galilee. It's the way of the new creation. It's the way of all of those who have been called to be disciples of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for our prayer life. Uh, We know, Father, that this call upon our lives is a is a real one. In other words, uh, it's not a procedure. It's not a list. It's not just the laws and just doing for the sake of doing, but actually developing a real love and a real relationship with you. And this is, in some ways, harder than uh, a list. As a list, you can just do and get it over with. But to learn to love you and walk with you and to have a dynamic relationship with you that is based upon truth and love and grace is something that has to be developed over time. It has to be developed over years of learning and praying and doing and exploring. And so, Father, we ask for each of us your guidance to get there as soon as possible, to get to the place where we see in our souls, in each of us individually, this wonderful and dynamic relationship with you. May we not neglect to praise you and thank you as we pray to you in whatever order we do it. And so, Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior. We thank you for today. Again, we lift up all those who are sick in our assembly and and ask for their healing and comfort. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Alan. <laughs> He's ready. Uh, uh, we're going to take our offering at this time. So, you want me to pray first, Alan? Oh, he wants me to pray first. 
Our Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to give. And as your believer priests, we give to you with grace and in, in, uh, in worship of you in response, Father, in good response to your grace upon us. As you say, you love a cheerful giver, and I pray that we all give cheerfully and that you use these finances to your glory. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Once my mother had a phrase, I'd uh, said you're busier than a one-armed paper hanger. Back when people used to hang wallpaper, I guess. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you uh, this morning. So let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for our gathering. Thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, as we strive to learn and know your word, Father, that we know that you will faithfully guide us in that which is true. As you say, if there's anything that we have a wrong attitude on, that you will correct. And so, Father, as we uh, sally forth in, in this doctrine of prayer, we know, Father, that it, it can be uh, challenging and also the questions that we have may not be immediately answered. But we Know, Father, that faithfully that you will guide us and correct us. Our closing moments of our service are dedicated to anyone who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior. And if you are listening to me and you have not believed upon him, I beg you to please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the wonderful and beautiful God-man who became the God who became a man to, for the purpose of saving you and saving me. He died for the sins of the whole world. Only in Christianity is a Savior provided for mankind without cost. It is by faith and faith alone in Christ that you will be saved. He's done all the work. All you have to do is believe upon him and you will be saved. And he who died is resurrected on the third day, resurrected to life eternal, and he will give that eternal life to all who accept him, to believe in him. Thank you, Father, and bless our day. In Christ's name, amen.